1965 disappearance of Mary Little remains one of Georgia's most mysterious missing person cases. On October 14, 1965, Mary spent the day as she had countless others, working, socializing with friends, and shopping. But she never made it home. She disappeared from an upscale Atlanta shopping center. Welcome to Southern Mysteries, exploring history and mysteries of the American South. I'm your host, Shannon Ballard. This is the mystery of the disappearance of Mary Shotwell Little. Mary Shotwell was a native of Charlotte, North Carolina. She entered North Carolina College for Women in 1958, when careers for women were still limited. Her college environment encouraged women to focus on determining their own future and advancing the status of women. Mary studied secretarial administration and enjoyed her time on campus. Mary was an attractive young woman with fair skin, hazel eyes, and light brown hair she wore in a page boy cut. She was charismatic and active in student life singing in the college choir, serving as chairman of the elections board, and working in several organizations and committees. After graduation in the spring 1962, Mary's diploma from the Secretarial Administration Program helped her land a job at a major bank in Atlanta, Georgia, Citizens and Southern National Bank, known as C&S Bank. She moved into a home on University Drive with a group of women she befriended quickly. Mary adjusted to her new life in Atlanta. She started dating and in September 1964, decided she wanted to give back to the community and volunteer. She applied for and was accepted as a volunteer Gray Lady with a DeKalb County American Red Cross. Gray Ladies assisted patients at Emory University Hospital with non-medical services. Mary continued her volunteer service until December 1964, but quit after she received several obscene phone calls at the hospital. In November 1964, Mary Shotwell's ex-boyfriend, William Thambro, introduced her to Roy Little Jr. The men had attended the Citadel in Charleston, South Carolina, and William thought the two would make a great pair. On November 8th, Mary and Roy spent their first date at a football game, and they were immediately smitten. They spent a lot of time together over the next few weeks. By Christmas 1964, they shocked their friends and family when they announced they planned to marry. In early 1965, Roy Little Jr. made it official. He proposed to 25-year-old Mary Shotwell with a white gold, solitaire diamond, Tiffany & Company ring. Mary was over the moon and in love, but her roommates and co-workers were skeptical of the whirlwind romance. Many would later say they just didn't like Roy Little Jr. Mary and Roy walked down the aisle at Myers Park Presbyterian Church in Mary's hometown of Charlotte, North Carolina, on September 4, 1965. They honeymooned at the Grove Park Inn in Asheville, 
before returning to Atlanta. The following week, Roy started a new job with the state of Georgia Department of Banks. Weeks later, on October 14, 1965, Mary planned to welcome her new husband home from a business trip to LaGrange, Georgia. He'd only been away for a few days, but she told her friends she missed him and wanted to welcome him home with a dinner party the next day. She spent the day at work and afterwards went grocery shopping at Colonial Grocery Store at Lenox Square in Atlanta. She later met up with coworkers for dinner at the SNS cafeteria. After dinner, she met a friend at Rich's department store, and the pair shopped until about 8 p.m. The friends said their goodbyes and headed to their cars in different areas of the parking lot. Mary's friend would later tell police the last time she saw Mary, she was waving goodbye, holding her brown leather handbag as she walked toward her 1965 Gray Pearl Mercury Comet in the parking lot. But Mary Shotwell Little never made it home. The next morning, when she didn't show up at work or call in, her co-workers were worried. Mary was reliable, and this was out of character. Her manager spoke with one of the co-workers Mary met for dinner the night before, and they agreed something seemed off. The manager called the apartment complex Mary had moved into near Decatur after she married Roy. The landlord noticed the Little's morning paper had never been picked up from the sidewalk and decided to enter the apartment to check on Mary. But there was no one home. When Mary's manager learned there was no sign of her at home, she asked the co-worker where Mary had parked when they met for dinner the night before. The manager called Lenox Square and asked if security could check the lot for Mary's car. They obliged and reported back Mary's car was not in the parking lot. C&S Bank personnel director Eugene Rackley called Roy Little in LaGrange, and Mary's husband said he had not heard from her. Rackley asked if Roy planned to call the police, but Roy said no. Rackley immediately hung up the phone and called police to report Mary Little missing. The CNS bank manager was so concerned, he left work to search for Mary. Hours later, he ended up driving through Lenox Square parking lot, where he discovered Mary's car. Lenox Square security had made their usual rounds, noting cars that were left in the lot overnight and issuing citations. They said Mary's car must have left the yellow lot where it was parked the night before sometime after 8 p.m. because her car was not on the list of vehicles that had been cited. Now, there were many mistakes and missteps made early on in Mary Little's case, and one of the first would be the police not asking for Lenox Square's parking security records. If they had, they may have been able to identify any vehicle left in the lot that had been cited so they could investigate the owners. Unfortunately, those records were never pursued. Authorities must have regretted that as the case went on 
because from the beginning, things were bizarre. Of greatest concern were the visible traces of blood in Mary's car. Atlanta police were notified and contacted Roy Little Jr. They asked him to immediately return to Atlanta. Police secured the scene around Mary's car and began their investigation. They noted the car engine was cold. The right front window, along with front and rear seats, had smears of blood. Mary's underwear were neatly folded and placed between the seats, along with one stocking that had been cut at the toe. The groceries Mary purchased the night before were in the back, along with items she purchased while shopping with her friend. Mary's handbag, keys, and raincoats were missing and were never found. Lab tests would later confirm the blood smears all over the inside of Mary's car matched her blood type. Police were perplexed by what was on the outside of the vehicle. It was covered in a fine coat of red clay dust, as though it had been driven down a dirt road, which didn't make sense in the heart of Atlanta. When police spoke with Mary's husband, Roy, and explained the strange circumstances surrounding her disappearance and her car being in the parking lot at the mall, Roy didn't seem concerned at all. But he did tell police he kept a detailed mileage log for Mary's car, which helped them calculate the car had been driven 41 miles after leaving Lenox Square the night of Mary's disappearance. Authorities launched what was, at the time, one of the largest and most expensive searches for a missing person in the state of Georgia. Ground searches began. Georgia National Guard troops joined in the effort. Mary's disappearance was front-page news, but authorities had no strong leads as to where Mary Little could be. Over the next four weeks, hundreds of people were interviewed. A few leads were followed, but investigators had no solid lead until Mary's credit card bill revealed there had been two gas station charges on the Little's account the day after she disappeared. Early on the morning of October 15th, the card was used at a gas station in Mary's hometown of Charlotte, North Carolina. An employee recalled seeing a woman with a man inside a gray car. A few hours later, there was another charge in Raleigh, North Carolina. An attendant remembered seeing a woman who appeared to be injured, had blood on her clothes. He said she was with two men, and she kept her face down, kind of like she was trying to hide behind a road map. The charge slip at each of the gas stations was signed Mrs. Roy Little. The FBI supported the investigation by offering to analyze the handwriting on the slips, but their test was inconclusive for a couple of reasons. The handwriting didn't appear steady, which they noted could have been a woman who was scared or still adjusting to signing her married name. They also noted the slips were from carbon copies, and that could impact the clarity of handwriting. When Mary's family saw the signature on the gas station slips, they didn't hesitate. They confirmed it was Mary's handwriting. 
A complication with the North Carolina sightings was the license plate number the attendants recorded. The plate had been stolen in Charlotte. Investigators tracked the card for future activity, but the charge in Raleigh on October 15, 1965, was the last activity recorded on Mary's charge card. Remember, there was that detailed mileage log Mary's husband Roy kept for the car. Police went back to that log and noted Mary's Mercury Comet did not have enough miles on it since Roy's last check to have traveled to and from North Carolina. But there were still 41 miles unexplained. When it was noticed Mary went missing, her car was found back in the Lenox Square parking lot, but the car had been moved at some point because it was not seen or sighted by overnight security at Lenox Square. The car mileage just created more questions than answers for investigators. Mary's husband, Roy, who had upset her friends and family by showing little to no emotion about her disappearance, was convinced to make a public appeal for her return that November. He appeared on radio and TV stations asking for any help the public could offer in the case. By December, the FBI officially joined the investigation. As investigators continued the search for clues, they learned Mary had received strange calls at her office before her disappearance. A coworker said she overheard Mary respond to one call saying, quote, I'm a married woman now. Another coworker heard Mary say, You can come over to my house anytime you like, but I can't come over there. Mary Little also received a delivery of roses from an anonymous source just before October 14th. They were purchased from Hall's Florist in Decatur. When police visited the florist and requested to see the order invoice, it was missing, and neither of the delivery men recalled making that delivery to Mary Little. Then there were the rumors surrounding Mary's workplace. C&S Bank was rumored to be involved in some suspicious activities. There were even rumors they were running a prostitution ring with the women employed at the bank. Some people assumed Mary was somehow involved, and that's why she went missing. Investigators looked into the bank and never found evidence of Mary's connection to any illegal activity rumored to have happened behind the scenes at C&S Bank. With each interview police conducted, they seemed further away from answers and even more confused by what could have been happening in Mary's life that led to her disappearance. When they spoke to a friend of Mary's from high school, the friend said she had spoken with Mary a few weeks before her disappearance. Mary seemed a little out of sorts, and when her friend asked what was wrong, all Mary said was that she was afraid to be in her car alone or at home alone, but she would never say why. Despite the FBI confirming Roy Little Jr. had been in LaGrange, Georgia at the time of his wife's disappearance, investigators still wanted to question him. On several occasions, they asked Roy Little to take a polygraph exam. Despite having a solid alibi 
at the time of his wife's disappearance, he refused. Now, investigators also looked into a theory that a parking lot creep could have abducted Mary. Two days after she disappeared, a woman named Carolyn Smitherman heard about the disappearance and walked into the Atlanta Police Department to share her story. She told the lead detective she was at Lenox Square the same night Mary went missing. When she finished shopping and walked back to her car late that night, she realized a strange man seemed to be following her. She made it back to her car, and just as she got inside and locked the door, this man came up to her window, grabbed the door handle, and tried to get inside her car. She told him he wasn't getting in, but he motioned to her back tire and said he just wanted to let her know the tire was low and he could help her. She immediately started the car and drove away. She stopped at a nearby service station where the man who checked her tires told her they were fine. There was no reason to be concerned. Most investigators believed Mary Little was abducted. After all, there was this abandoned car in the parking lot with blood that matched Mary's blood type inside. Could the creepy man in Lenox Square parking lot that evening be the person responsible for Mary's disappearance? Some investigators were convinced this was a man hunting for a woman to abduct, possibly assault, or murder. And Carolyn Smitherman could have been a victim had she unlocked her door. That seemed like a strong theory, but that was all police had. Two years after Mary disappeared, the case was still open. Police were still trying to find out what happened to Mary Little. When the woman who replaced Mary at C&S Bank was murdered. And there were some eerie similarities between these cases. Diane Shields was a pretty blonde 22-year-old secretary who had moved to Atlanta from her hometown of Guntersville, Alabama. She was working at C&S Bank when Mary Little disappeared and was transferred to Mary's department to cover her responsibilities on the job. She sat at Mary's desk, became friends with some of the colleagues Mary had known and loved. Diane even moved in with one of Mary's former roommates. By early 1967, she took a new job, with another company, and moved in with her sister in College Park. She was engaged and planned to marry the love of her life in July of that year. But Diane Shields went missing on May 19, 1967. She left work and never made it home. She was driving her blue and white Chevy Impala, which East Point Police spotted early the next morning, just south of Atlanta, near a drive-in window of a laundry. The keys were still in the ignition. An officer noticed blood dripping from the rear end of the car. He opened the trunk and made a grisly discovery. Diane Shields' body was upside down, between a spare tire and a cardboard box. Detailed notes from the crime scene described Diane Shields as fully clothed. The coroner would later confirm there were no signs of sexual assault. 
she had not been robbed. In fact, she was still wearing her diamond engagement ring. But Diane Shields had been viciously beaten to death with a scarf and a piece of paper stuffed down her throat, as if to signify her killer wanted to silence her. When police spoke with Diane's friends and colleagues, they said Diane was one of the sweetest people you would ever meet. But there had been some strange behavior in the months leading up to her murder. They said Diane had been disappearing for hours at a time, would just miss appointments. When police spoke with a friend of Diane Shields in her hometown of Guntersville, this friend told authorities Diane confided she had been working undercover. She claimed she was trying to solve the mystery of Mary Little's disappearance. An East Point police detective assigned to investigate Diane's murder once said of the Shields and Little cases that there was no question in his mind. They were connected. He believed someone involved in the internal investigation of C&S Bank was responsible for Mary Little's disappearance and for Diane Shields' murder. The longer authorities investigated these cases, the more theories emerged, including one that further complicated the investigations. Was Mary Little abducted, or was she involved in something that put her at risk, something which forced her to arrange her own disappearance? After the news broke about the murder of Diane Shields, the lead investigator, working Mary Little's case, received an odd phone call from Mary's mother. She asked him to stop investigating Mary's case. Immediately, investigators wondered, could Mary Little be alive? Had she reached out to her mother to let her know she was safe? Authorities tried to get the FBI to tap the family's phone, but the FBI never approved the request. Through the years, tips have come in that led authorities to locations to dig for evidence, possibly remains of Mary Little. When the tips were credible, investigators acted, but they never found a thing. Even if remains were found, there's no way to verify it's Mary. Because once DNA testing became a reality for investigators, they requested Mary's family provide a DNA sample for comparison to unknown remains. As far as we know, no one in Mary's family was willing to provide a sample. Several investigators who worked the case over the years believe Mary Little did not die in 1965, and Mary's family refusing to provide DNA convinced them Mary was in touch at some point and asked them to protect her. Nearly six decades later, there are so many questions surrounding the Mary Little case. Many of Mary's family members are no longer alive, and a majority of detectives who have worked the case through the decades have retired or died. To this day, the murder of Diane Shields remains a cold case. 
and Mary Shotwell Little is still, and many fear will forever be, listed as a missing person. Southern Mysteries is created and hosted by me, Shannon Ballard. You can find sources for this episode and learn more about the show at southernmysteries.com. Now, if you are new to Southern Mysteries and you enjoy the show, there are more than 60 episodes in the archives you can access when you join me on Patreon, plus bonus episodes that are exclusive to patrons as a thanks for your support of this independent podcast. Thanks to our newest Southern Mysteries patrons who helped make this episode possible. Tessa from Lake George, Utah, Dawn from Port Lucie, Florida, Michael from Tampa, Florida, Amy from Santa Maria, California, and Jessica and Michelle, supporting from a mysterious location. You can join them in supporting the show and get immediate access to dozens of Southern Mysteries episodes you can't hear anywhere else when you join at patreon.com slash southernmysteries. However you support the show, as a patron or sharing episodes and spreading the word about Southern Mysteries, know that I appreciate you. And as 2022 winds down, you're the reason I'm excited to continue sharing more of these stories in the year ahead. Enjoy your holiday season. And thanks so much for listening to Southern Mysteries. Southern Mysteries.